So I was trying to capture musically this concept of Jack the Ripper actually being Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes books. And I I decided that it itself is kind of a mashup, right? (laughs) So there's a mashup for you. It's a cool one between the Pink Panther and the James Bond themes. And uh, and those are all the numbers you need to participate in the conversation. First, we'll wrap up where we left off, just before the top of the hour with Dr. Dan Friedman, who uh, was telling us about the the Whitechapel murders in a, in a way which explains why it is that we think it was somebody with medical training. Well, let's just let's just give to that. Let's just say, okay, that's unique. But that doesn't necessarily say that it's Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But that's where we'll return in just a second on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. So, uh, Dr. Dan Freeman, I, I will stipulate to every point you're making about the surgical precision of the the murders and the significance of them. But does anybody, is there any evidence that would somehow say the way the bodies were laid out or eviscerated somehow specifically points to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? You know, I can give you an answer to that, but explaining it in one way. And, and, and it, all, it, all, it, it goes in something that happened a year before the Ripper crimes. In 1887, Arthur Conan Doyle joined the very prestigious community-based uh, Freemasons. Uh, they do a lot of wonderful things around your areas even today. And back in the 19 or 19th century, you know, we had kings, presidents, doctors, lawyers. They made up the higher ranks of the group. Sure. They were, it was a really – it really is – even today, they have lodges around the world. It's great. But he became a member, um, and he, he rose really quickly through the ranks. Like he, just, he joined it maybe like in, in February or January – I think late January of 1887. By March of 1887, you already had the third degree, which means – even though he, it, he rose the ranks really quickly, by becoming a third-degree master mason – and getting his blue apron, he had to learn the ritual of the Hiram Abit play. Uh, this is like the master mason behind King Solomon's uh, sure. endeavors. Right. The way the murders, and um, murder number three, I'm not going to talk about because Liz Stride was like she was. It was he was going to get caught in the act, so he had to flee the scene. So it's really murders number one, two, and four, all show a Masonic pattern. But, and I'll explain how. In murder number one, what happens with Marianne is that her throat is slit and her dress is buttoned when the, the, they find her. But when they bring her to the morgue, she's mutilated on the inside. Her, her belly's opened and she's all mutilated. So she was, the, the Ripper actually took the time to rebutton her, her, her dress. So all he wanted the people who ever found her to find was a neck that was slit. In that play that the Masons do, that's the first sign of their, of their penal signs, is the, 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 the first penalty given to the people that killed Hiram Abiff is the, is the cut neck. In murder number two, which is Annie Chapman, I think you, just, you actually played that song before, she's actually found naked to the world. So that's actually what they wrote in the papers, that she was found, like, whoever uh, uh, exposed her body's exposed. 
her neck is slit, which is penal sign number one, but her organs are placed over her shoulders, and that is actually the penal sign number two of the Master Masons back in the 19th century. They, they, this is all play in any anyway. Sure. Murder number three was a botch up, and murder number four is what I was talking about. This was the only, of course, neck is slit, penal sign number one, organs placed above her shoulders and be, between her arm, which was the penal sign number two. Number three is a blow to the head, and this was the only one of the Ripper murders that had any type of facial lacerations or mutilations to them. So he actually does, so whoever the Ripper was had technical expertise in surgery. We have Arthur Cronin Doyle being that, that person who actually advertised his services when he was just starting as a midwife. Right. So, so he actually told people, wouldn't come to me because I can do obstetric procedures. That's how he advertised himself. That was his card, surgeon and midwife. And you have to be a mason who above a third degree to know that secret rit- ritual. And right, a- right after Doyle got his third degree, he never showed up to any more meetings. He was done, and he demitted within a year. So he was gone out of the out of the masons. But he knew the rituals, obviously. He still kept that with right. him. Okay. So we know that then the killer was, we can presume from that, that the killer was uh, a Masonic member who was also a doctor. Okay, fine. But that still doesn't specifically say Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm -hmm. And one of the, I mean, this uh, this motif of the Masons, um, you know, the Mason, the secret Masonic society had a a history of protecting itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And we know that that also gets played into the Ripper lore, that this may have been one of the reasons why. This is one of the things that gets confusing about say whether or not it was Queen Victoria's, uh, you know, son or whether it's a, uh, some member of the royal family. So there's there's a lot of the but and then I get a lot of questions that people want to get to on the phone. So I don't want to take up too much time. But but when in the actual approach to the victims, is there anything that you see in that that indicates Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? specifically as Jack the Ripper, in the approach to the victims? Well, I see he approached these victims that he wanted a specific age range for revenge, that he wanted to find the women that gave his father, and ostensibly even himself. Now, I I don't know if I mentioned this, but in Doyle's thesis, he actually writes that he's taking a double dose of a medication that is used to prevent the complications of syphilis. So here's a 25-year-old taking a medicine in toxic doses, basically, he writes in his, in his thesis, because he, it, it, it wards off the, 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 uh, the later effects of syphilis. So in his mind, it may not be true or not, but in his own mind, he thought he had syphilis. And that goes along with a rash he had right afterwards. When he was 27, he started using a chemical called pyrogallic acid on a rash he diagnosed on himself called psoriasis. It's a common medical condition. But, but psoriasis, as all doctors know, and even a lot of lame people know, is that psoriasis can, be, uh, can also look like syphilis. So he may have been thinking that his rash at first was psoriasis, but when it didn't get better with, his, with the, uh, the medicine he was using, he may have actually thought he was... He he was you know afflicted with right. syphilis too, and again that would have triggered him a year later to go after these these women of the night prostitutes in their you know over the age of forty less than the age of fifty. Got it. Uh, yep. But, uh, but could he have approached them as a doctor that they had known 
from, say, the London Hospital? Could he have approached them as somebody that they would have a face they would have seen as familiar in the neighborhood? Well, he did make trips up to the Gresham uh, Assurance Company, but but I I don't think so because at murder number three um, with Liz Stride, interestingly enough. She was when she was found murdered. Because remember, it was really quick. The, the Ripper didn't have time to do what he needed to do. She was actually found on her side instead of laying, you know, face upward. In her left hand, clutched in her left hand, was a packet of like breath mints. Hmm. In other words, she must have thought she was going to be that the person approaching her was trying to solicit her for activities. Right. Took it, you know, to sweeten her breath before the client showed up. She, you know, right. took a breath mint. So she still had those in her hand. So I don't think she really knew the Ripper, uh, the, the identity of the Ripper, although a murder number four, Catherine Eddowes, she actually said she was actually that this woman was arrested that, that night for intoxication, for drunkenness. So she was actually in jail. And when she left jail, she actually told Constable Hutt, who let her out, that I'm going out because I know who the Ripper is and I'm going to go get him. Huh. So it's, well. I mean, I don't know how true that story is, but that's according to the documents. That's what he, you know, that was what was spoken about. All right, let's get to the calls. First time caller line, Bill is in Oklahoma for Dr. Dan Freeman. Go ahead, Bill. Yes, sir, Ian, it's a pleasure. And uh, you? There's one point about mutilations, and it's a cross-cultural reference. And is I'm going to bring up the word religion. And damnation was he a religious zealot in his own mind where their eyeballs were split? All right. Well, let's go. Let's let's just get that question answered. Any sign of religious zealotry? Oh, well, for religion on the Ripper crimes, I don't really see that there was a religious undertone here, except for if you if you're you're looking for like. The, the Masonic connection, but that's not a religion. That's just a, you know, it's no. I don't really see religion being an element for the Ripper, Ripper slayings. No. I, I would say no on religion on this one. Well, but, you know, it's funny about uh, masonry. It It isn't religion per se, but it right. was, a, it, it did follow um, the precept of, of, of an inclusion of everybody under one all-seeing eye, right under one yeah, God. I remember that little the, the, yeah. the one the the the, uh, the pyramid with the with yeah. the eye exactly. Yeah. So I mean, there is there are it was a it was what we might um, what some people might consider to be uh, a deistic movement because so many of the the founding fathers were well, they were deists, were masons. Yeah, yeah. and they, so they, they were the planet going and everything right. that followed was you know just. The, Already the clockmaker theory. All right, let me go to uh, Carol, who's in Minneapolis on Coast to Coast, for Dr. Dan Freeman. Go ahead, Carol. Uh, hi, Ian. Hey. You know, um, every time I get through to your show, I like to put in a plug for the Bluegrass Bell Book. But oh, thank you. you. beat me to it. Uh, I did. I did mention it earlier, so thank you. That's nice of you. <laughs> so I, you had a question for Dr. Dan Freeman? Yes, um... Uh, the, the the doctor is is an amazingly thorough. Oh, okay, thank you, Carol. What I'd like thank to you. do is um, mention two other what I call celebrity suspects, and the books that were written about them. The first is um, the Final Solution by Stephen Knight, who who proposed uh, Prince Eddie heir to the throne, 
was the killer. And the other book is called um, uh, uh, My Light-Hearted Friend uh, about Lewis Carroll, author of Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, who is a messed up guy. (laughs) Seriously messed (laughs) up guy. But uh, both of these uh, books were basically debunked because there were diaries yeah. that mentioned where these two people right. were during at least one of the crimes. And I believe Prince Eddie was at uh, one of the royal castles. Yeah, he, yeah, was, he, was, he was over in Edinburgh at the time. So he he really wasn't a, wasn't a, around unless he could teleport. I mean, if he was like you know, if he could right. teleport himself to London, he could have been there. But he was nowhere to be found at this point in time. And there's a lot of other ones too. Um, you know, Ian was talking about uh, the Queen's uh, royal physician, the, you know, yeah. Dr. William Gull. The problem with Dr. Gull was, and I, I I'm going to confess, when I first started this project, I actually thought. The, the Queen's Royal Physician was Jack the Ripper, because I watched this movie when I was a kid with Michael Caine in it. Right. Uh, good but, movie. Yeah, it was really good. The problem with Dr. Gull is he was 72 years old at the time, and a year before the Ripper crimes, he suffered a stroke, which left him permanently paralyzed of his, of his dominant right hand. So he, he would never have been able to button up the stays of the, of the first victim he, he murdered, and he would never have been able to subdue his targets with one hand choke them. You need, that's, and that's why Doyle makes a great suspect. You need a powerful right. man to, to throttle these women who but can't in, make a scream. In so, the Dr. Gull case, I mean, the allegation or has been made about not just him, but also Prince Eddie or other people, that they had help. Yeah, but then again, you remember, you're in Whitechapel and seeing the royal coach come by, or, uh, uh, remember, people did see the Ripper. They, they did, they were people that did see the Ripper. I, those people were more of uh, public figures. Uh, someone would have recognized the Queen's but, Royal Physician. But, that, the, but that's my point, is if it's, they might have actually seen was the footman. And that, that the allegation is that they didn't actually see the Ripper, they saw the helper. Right, but then again, you know, William Gold doing a one-handed surgery mastery. Right. I don't right. think he could have done that. Right? No, no, I, I'm with you. I just saw him. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. making the argument. All right, uh, let's go to uh, Melissa, east of the Rockies in South Carolina, on coast to coast. Melissa, hey, you're still hanging on, Melissa, for Dr. Dan Freeman. We lost her. Oh, uh, no. Aaron, west of the Rockies in Fountain Valley, California, on coast to coast. Aaron? Hi, Ian. How are you doing? Good. You're talking to Dr. Dan Freeman and uh, two books, one coming out this fall, the new one that's updated, and, and uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle. Go ahead. Yes, Dr. Daniel. Um, very good job. Mystery, huh? Um, I'm currently reading Sherlock Holmes's Treasury. I've been reading it for years. I, I, I mean, it's just so slow. Every line you read is beautiful. Um, I wanted to say that, hi, Ian, you are the deacon of dark. Congratulations on your new Thank podcast. You. Thank you. And I will listen. It seems to me that you are Sherlock and Watson, both of you. Uh, yeah, I'm definitely he Watson. Hearing, he, can, he can be Sherlock. Hearing <laughs> at what Sherlock and Watson were pondering about their writer, A. Conan Doyle, who was also pondering back what he had created. 
and I guess I'll leave that. Oh, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, the reflections that, what were the reflections that the creator had on his creation? Yeah, just, you know, my my book, The Doyle's World, is about the, the monstrous amount of work that Doyle did, and my Strange Case of Dr. Doyle book is about the monster that Doyle, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle was, the same way he thought about Sherlock Holmes. He actually thought that Sherlock Holmes ruined his career. He hated the character. He, he hated it, what it was doing to his good works, like the White uh, Company, uh, the refugees. That's why in 1893, just... Five years after creating the, the character that brought him fame and international renown, he throws him off a cliff, and he, and, he, and he tells people, I'm not, and he does a lecture tour a year later in America, he says, I'm not bringing the guy back. He's dead. He, it wasn't supposed to be a Thomas Hardy cliffhanger. You know, that, you know he, he survives miraculously from Reichenbach Falls. No, Doyle hated the character. He told his mother, I need to get rid of this character. He's ruining my life. I want to be known for my history, not for a detective. And he kills off his character. So that is really his thoughts on what he made. Now, of course, later on, he, gets, he goes to South Africa, and uh, Fletcher Robinson convinces him to bring back Holmes. He's such a great character. Don't kill him. And he, and he does. But he says, I can't bring him back to life. I'll just bring him back before, before he dies. And, of course, he brings it back to, to September, September of 1888, the day of the murder of the double homicides, double murders, I should say. So, um, yes, hmm. those, that's what he did originally, and he did not like his character. You know, maybe in a way trying to uh, rid himself of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was trying to exercise himself of the demon that he knew he was who relied on Jack the Ripper. I agree, and exactly. And you know what's really... My book has a lot of spiritualism in it, and Arthur Conan Doyle, with these Ripper crimes, when the right. Ripper crimes were over, all of a sudden he says, I'm a, I am going to be the spiritualist for the world. I'm going to convert people. I am going to... Um, Get, talk to you know, protect the mediums that uh, speak to the spirit world. I am going to be their champion defender. And I'm, when I get older, he does this. He actually buys a building right outside of Westminster Abbey uh, for seven hundred pounds a year out of his own money. He makes a museum and bookshop that he funds for spiritualism. So it's really he finds religion after the Ripper killings as a spiritualist, someone who. Yeah. You know, who can see the, the beyond world, and he can speak to spirits because they're, they're not really dead. It almost justifies, like, I didn't really kill anybody. They're still alive in another world. Oh, interesting. I see the psychological connection you're making there. We'll give you the numbers. You can join the conversation with Dr. Dan Freeman next on Coast to Coast AM. Time is running out. This is Ian Punnett. And uh, and it speaks to one theory that I'd love to have uh, Dr. Dan Friedman speak to coming up, that the royal family or the the police, the Metropolitan Police Scotland Yard, knew um, that there was a killer afoot that was going after prostitutes, but they stepped aside in their own sort of way to be complicit in the eradication of this health threat or to scare people out of prostitution. 
That's a, a theme that gets floated sometimes with people who follow the Jack the Ripper story. And it kind of seems like it might fit in here with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle as well. Next on Coast to Coast AM, this is Ian Punnett. Always some interesting conversations going on Twitter at Deacon Punnett. Always glad to hear of you from you as well. And uh, yes, the podcast series is up. We're into episode two, and uh, you can hear that. Might even be pulling a quote out of this one somewhere down the road. Hey, Dr. Dan Friedman, we, so we're we're talking about this inculcation between Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Jack the Ripper. But I was sort of reminded of the very first question I started with or the line of questioning I was pursuing, and I, I don't know that I got the answer that I was seeking. So is there any proof at all that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle reached out to the police to taunt the police? Is there any proof that the Jack the Ripper, that so-called that gave the name that we still know, the sort of nom de guerre or whatever you want to call it, to the character that was committing these crimes. Do we think that that is any indication into the psyche or the background of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? You have to remember that there's a couple of things that's going to happen here. There are hundreds of letters being mailed to the police, to the central news agencies. Some of them were... some were complete nonsense. Others looked kind of authentic. Certain ones were real. Um, but we And going back to what you were saying before about, like, this, maybe the government or the, the, the queen was trying to hide things, there's one thing that stands out to me, and that is that message that happened on the double murder. And we know this, 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 was, this is the Ripper, and we know it because when... Frederick Gordon Brown was examining the body. He saw that there was a piece of fabric missing from her dress. It was cut away purposely. They found that piece of paper in the Wentworth dwellings. And there was the, the, the apron piece was there, and it was a perfect match to uh, Catherine Eddowes' dress. The Ripper actually taunted the police. He actually wrote a message to them because we, we have the apron. We know it was from her, and he wrote, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Again, really not really a lot of double negatives in here. Um, right. He just uses the word here that some people relate to um, the, the, the Masons we were talking about before, and it's also maybe a farewell message saying that we're, I'm done. And this was, to me, the last of the Ripper murders. So it, but the, the most important thing about that message was it could have been easily photographed, easily photographed. In, in fact, the person from the city police, James uh, McWilliams, he wanted to photograph. But, but Co- Commissioner Warren and Superintendent Thomas Arnold said, absolutely not. You're going to wash it off the walls. We're not even going to photograph this thing. Right, right. Now, now, that's the, the, now there's something with that. They, they wanted that message off that wall. And they and I got to tell you, and some people don't know this about Commissioner Warren, uh, he was a leader in the Freemasons. He actually started the Masonic Library in in London, so he was their historian. If anybody was going to know what that message indicated or meant, 
it would have been Commissioner Warren. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. he, and and Jews is misspelled, right? It's J E W E S. Yes, exactly. It's, it's spelled in a more of a uh, relating to the three people that murdered. We talk about the, the, those those penal signs. Those are the three Jubela, Jubala, Jubalum. That refers supposedly to those three people that killed Hiram Abeth, King Solomon's master mason. Okay, and what to take that even one step further? Then, what's interesting is that anti-Semitism was rife in that part of England during that period, and that one, I mean, we use Benjamin Disraeli as an example, that there was just a great suspicion always already of some Mm -hmm. sort of Jewish cabal. Um, And so that is intriguing that they didn't, that they could have, the other hand of that, they could have played that up as being an excuse that would have covered who was responsible for Jack the Ripper? Mm-hmm. And remember, right. the, the, the caricaturists, the, you know, the, basically the newspaper caricaturists, like when they depicted Jack the Ripper, sometimes they did it as a ghastly ghost, and sometimes they did it as a gentleman physician, which is interesting. But other times they actually, you know, portrayed him as being a with a, in a very anti-Semitic uh, de- depiction with the you know the Jewish features. You know, well, the, the Jewish stereotype. meaning Russian or Polish, yeah, which exactly, is exactly exactly right, which is not Jewish features per se, but it's a particular ethnic right. type of Judaism, Correct. and would would have been the lower class form of Judaism. The right. German Jews were were a different class generally, and they were much more of a merchant class, whereas the the lower class German Russian Jews would have been more; they would have been more likely to have been on on ships or other jobs of day, day laborers, Correct. as opposed to uh, merchants. All right, let me get uh, John in here real quick. He's got a quick thought about Jack the Ripper on Coast to Coast AM. Go ahead, John. Hi guys. I uh, of course you answered that because I I was saying the same thing that he probably caught a venereal disease was taking it out on the prostitutes, but I'd heard the, the theories of the royal family, and this is the first I knew of Doyle. I Listening to you guys, I think that it could not have been Doyle because he was too high profile. And the police were coming to him and asking his, if I remember correctly, because he wrote Sherlock Holmes, they were asking for his advice on what he thought. And now I think possibly listening to you guys that Doyle may have known who did it, and was maybe running cover of protecting a family member or a friend, because if you remember later, Houdini tried to defraud his wife for the spiritualism, and I would think that if Houdini, being as smart as he is, would have found that out, he would have exposed it. But okay, hang, 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 hang on a second. Stay on the line, but you, you've thrown a lot at it so far, and I don't, I don't think that's quite accurate. But where are you with that, Dr. Dan? Well, I like what you're saying. The problem is that Doyle did not really achieve his fame in 1888. He was really an unknown. He wasn't, you know, yes, sure, a few years later, uh, after um, a case of identity hit in, like, 18, late 1890s, um, you know, 18, like, probably, like, April, May, June right. of 1890, uh, people started recognizing him a little bit. He wasn't... He wasn't the person you think of in 1888. If you would have said Arthur Conan Doyle in 1888, they would have like, who's that guy? Yeah, oh, who's I, that I, guy? I, I, may, I may have seen an article by him once in a medical journal. That's right. all they would have told you. He but did the police state. consult with him? Is there any evidence that the, the, the that Scotland Yard consulted with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in you know what? 1888? Yeah. 
it's a, it, no, in 1888, no. But they did, they did invite him in 1893 to go to the Scotland Yard Black Museum, which is very interesting because this is one of the pieces of evidence I use in my book, is that when he did that, that tour of Scotland Yard, he actually writes about the Dear Boss letter, and he goes into great detail about it. Now, supposedly, the world experts today say he only saw a facsimile of a, a, a copy of it. He didn't see the right. real deal. Right, a facsimile. Right, but, but except that he wrote about the high-quality paper the Ripper used and mm. the, red, the blood-red ink used by the Ripper. So it, those are two elements that, in a facsimile, you know, like, it would never have shown. The, the paper uh, obviously would have been whatever the, the, the Scotland Yard people would have used. It wouldn't have been that high-quality paper, probably Piri paper, which Patricia Cromwell links to the Ripper. And that was one of the things I had to do research on in my book. You know, I had to prove that Arthur Conan Doyle used Piri paper, and his uh, teacher, William Rutherford, demanded that all his students use Piri paper, the smooth but highly glazed type. So he had oh. that type of paper, by the way. Okay, so, John, what do you think of that so far? I think you're good, but here's, here's another thing that maybe, and I'm sure he knows, but Ian... Years after that, maybe like a year or so, when the murder stopped, the Ripper resurfaced in Cleveland, Ohio. And it was. Well, no. Well, now, wait a minute. How no, wait, wait, wait. I love that theory, but I don't think that, that that's provable in the end. But I, love, I know the story you're talking about. But go ahead, explain. The Polish, they thought it was a Polish immigrant who had knowledge of it. Of, of being, a, I don't know if they were brothers. One was a doctor, the other one was a butcher, and they feel that maybe that somehow he was like thrown out of there, got him out of England, and he went onto a ship and came to America. But Elliot Ness was under that. I think they tried to keep it silent. Wait, wait, he wait! Had... But now, now you're mixing the now you're now you're talking about a, sometime later on. The, you're talking about the Cleveland torso murders. When Elliot Ness left Chicago after he'd become famous from the Untouchable, relatively famous from the Untouchables, mm-hmm. he went to Cleveland. That's 1934, right? That's what my because I, I know that that it surfaced. And I didn't know the time period. That's like five I, decades I, I for, later. No, I, I, mean, I, I, I thank you for correcting me. I just knew that there was some sort of murders that were kind of like that. You know what, you may be referring to another doctor, and there was one, Thomas Neil Cream, who made the list of suspects. This guy actually almost confessed to being the Ripper, by the way. He was on the gallows. He killed four London prostitutes with poison, and he was on the gallows. And right before they they, they, they opened the the, the trap door, he screamed at, I am Jack, and then he he died before he could say it. But the problem with this guy is, and he's he's in... From America, he killed. He he poisoned this guy Daniel Scott with like strychnine or something. But the problem was during the Ripper crimes, he was in the Illinois State Penitentiary, so he could never have been the Ripper. He was he was incarcerated. Maybe I don't. Maybe that's the story that you're thinking of a guy from like the, the states who got who almost confessed. But right. He, he was locked up. He was he, he couldn't have been it. But he was American, and uh, and he did kill four prostitutes in, in London. In London, he did kill four prostitutes. He poisoned them. But um, again, his mo was completely different. He used poison. The Ripper just used brute force. Right. And then once he killed them, he used his knife to do what he needed to do to get organs to, to for a ritual that he was doing. So. Yeah, and that's kind of the same thing. I mean, you get almost closer with the Doctor Crippen thing, right? right? Because he was 
from wasn't he was from England, but then he was practicing in America, or he was American, and then he was he was in London. However, but there was at least some cross pollinization with him uh, because he's in the same museums generally as um, as uh, as Jack the Ripper um, in England. They, the, the, I mean, Crippen was was pretty famous for at least for a brief period of time, but very, but really do appreciate the, the, the stirring the pot there, John, it gave us a chance to address those things. Yeah, sure. All right. So let's, let's go with the, I'm curious about something that you might have to say in, in vaudeville for the fright in this podcast, I, I talk a little bit about the, uh, the public image that, some serial killers depend on of respectability um and then a certain point in their lives when the pressures the stress just gets too much and they act out they sort of you know if you will they slash their way through that problem and then they go back to their respectable lives where people might never suspect that they were a killer what do you see in this this connection between Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Jack the Ripper that would support that or would disprove that? Yes, I like, you know, and, and actually Doyle actually writes about this in uh, one of his stories, The Six Napoleons, about the idea fix, where you're normal, everything's going great, you know, you have issues that are pent up, and then all of a sudden you read something or you see something. In his case, it was the Masonic ritual. And it, you have an, uh, your, your, your brain fixates on it, and it has to carry it to completion. But once you do it to completion, once you get it all done, you can go back to a normal life. And, you, and you, may, you may try to find religion, or you may try to do something else. And that actually fits Doyle's pattern here, that he had this idea fix, that he had a lot of issues growing up. He had a lot of emotional, physical abuse. His father issues, his mother issues, the possible a uh, a, a child mom had that was with the with the lodger, and he just finally snapped when he read the Mason ritual about how you, you get revenge on someone who does something to you, and you know at first right before this was happening he was asking for his prostitutes to be locked up and people were calling him a liar in the pages of the press and you know he tried to defend himself when he really couldn't and then. But he, if he had that idea fixed after reading the the Masonic ritual, and he commits his, he does what he needs to do to act out all three murders, which they were, he could go on with his normal life. And it's only after the murders are done that Arthur Conan Doyle makes establishes himself for himself as a as a great writer, a great author. He's able to go have a family. He's able to he well he had an unsuccessful medical practice, but he's able to make a, a living, a great living, and. And he was popular, and and become a knight of the empire. Exactly. Yeah, he was. He was popular, and that popularity would have been the perfect camouflage. Oh, and it was, and he could have walked into any ballroom with a bunch of police officers or detectives, and he could have. No one would have suspected a thing. He was just too. He was on another level. He was a, a higher echelon now. He's 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 untouchable. Going to yeah. the other, other thing we mentioned before, uh, yes, he was untouchable. He was he he was beyond reproach. And if because his hunting grounds were really one specific part of East London, 
he could have visited those at any time. Anytime he needed a sense of his dominance or his superiority or how clever he was, he wouldn't had to have gone to, as other serial killers have done, a kind of uh, uh, a kind of graveyard of their of their victims. He could have just walked around Whitechapel. Sure, and remember that was his, and that was a place that he actually enjoyed. Right before the murders occurred, he actually went down to the docks of the East End and he would sit there and look at the ships take off. He just loved being down there. And that was a, a comfort, comforting place for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes. Uh, and he was not afraid of being around those people. Uh, uh, they were probably afraid to be around him. The guy was, like, super powerful. He knew how to defend himself. He was an expert boxer. He actually, he mentioned during uh, the college years when he was uh, working as a ship surgeon in the Arctic, he, on the first day on board that ship, he beat the daylights out of the, the, the strongest guy on the, on the boat to make, to make sure that he got the respect he wanted as a, as a, like a, a tough guy. And he, on his first day at school in Selkirk, Austria, he stabs his roommate in the belly. Uh, the first day at his job in, uh, when he moved to Portsmouth, he actually says he got into a fight in the street with some guy. Uh, a sailor in the street. I mean, this—he, you just meet this guy. He'll beat you up in the streets. He, but he, but he grew into, along with that, the idea of going to med school and being considered smart and all of that. He grew into then, if I if I read your research correctly, into really being not just somebody who was a pugilist, but somebody who was actually a killer. Exactly. All right, we'll have to leave that there. But we'll have you back in the fall when you get the new book out. Oh, thank you, Ian. It would be a pleasure. Okay. Always. I look forward to hearing what you've come up with, the new Lost and Found, um, which you can pre-order by going to coasttocoastam.com. I look tomorrow. Is tomorrow Father's Day? I cannot. I don't know. No. It's next week, right? Good. Oh, thank God. Okay. Uh, uh, I don't have a father to send a note to, but suddenly realized, ooh, missed a chance. Um, So thank you again uh, to uh, Dan Friedman and his father, Eugene Friedman, co-authors of this book, and uh, to all of the guests this weekend. Uh, And by all means, then, be ready for this Father's Day. If there is somebody who's just even a father figure in your life, then do them the honor of letting them know how important you were to them, even if it's not blood, but kind of a spiritual fatherhood. They might just appreciate that. Deus te amat, and I do too.